In Mark, we're in Mark's Gospel, second week of a series we have begun last week. In Mark chapter 1, 9 to 13, we see amazing beginnings. Mark is the book of amazement, and our series is entitled, I Stand Amazed, because Jesus really is, as Mark says, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world. His life and death and resurrection truly is Amazing. You don't need me to say amen at that one. Amen? Come on, guys, wake up. (laughs) His life and death and resurrection is amazing. Yes. So be it, Lord God. And his ministry had an amazing beginning. Some of us here today are weighing up options of new beginnings. They don't happen all the time in life, but there are seasons of change, of new beginnings, of stepping out of comfort zones, of safety, stepping out of that which is familiar, times when God leads us into what's next. And if that's you today, I hope and pray that you would be encouraged from our text today, from the Spirit speaking to your heart and mind. New beginnings invariably emerge out of a clarification of who we are as people. When we understand who we truly are, the revelation of identity is often what precipitates change. As we move into new beginnings, we wonder, how am I going to actually manage this new challenge? When Jesus was baptised, his identity, the who factor was reinforced and the methodology of how he would do his ministry was highlighted. Who and how? He is the Son of God and he would minister in the power of the Spirit. The same is true for us, isn't it? We need to find out who we are. Hopefully by faith we are children of God and we will achieve what God has called us to do with this one and only solitary life through the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. The text begins in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Jesus is around 30 years old. He was born in Bethlehem, spent some time on the run in Egypt as a young boy, but we understand that he made his way back to Nazareth, acquired the family trade as a carpenter, and learned a whole lot about the Old Testament in the process. The Bible says he was confounding the teachers of the temple at the age of 12. A rabbi in Israel wasn't respected by his community until he was 30 years old. So that's probably why Jesus had to wait until he was that type of age before he launched his ministry. We don't get told what happened between the ages of 12 to 30. The Gnostic Gospels that we as evangelicals, we we would say are heretical, they go into lots of detail. That's the sort of gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, where the Da Vinci Code gets written from all these types of gospels. They're called Gnostic gospels, and they're very detailed about what Jesus did when he was 12 to 30, but the scripture doesn't tell us at all. It just says that he did not sin. He was without sin in the lead up, and so he has prepared himself waiting patiently, and now his ministry 
is about to begin. I was told many years ago that my job was to learn something worth telling people about God. And it was God's job to give me a platform to share it. Has anyone else experienced that? Our job is to actually find some truth. Find something that God has given us. Identify how he's gifted me, how he's shaped me, why he has walked me through the pathways of life that I have been on. Why has he done that? I reflect on that, learn from that, grow in that, and I trust that God will give me something to do with all of that. Amen? This is the process of life finding out something worth sharing and trusting patiently for God to give us a platform to share it with others. Jesus has been waiting for the platform. It's about to be opened up for him. He comes from Nazareth to the Jordan River. The text says in verse 10, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. The fact that Mark tells us that Jesus was coming out of the water is a bit of a hint that he went under the water. I I think this is a strong argument that he wasn't sprinkled on the forehead in the Jordan, but the word baptism means to dip under. So Jesus is fully immersed like a good Baptist. And when he came out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. What on earth does that mean? Heaven was torn open. Well, it's an interesting comment. If heaven is some place that is spatially located up there, sort of in the clouds, I often think if that was the case, where is heaven when the The clouds disappear, it's a sunny day. I mean, is heaven up there? Probably not, though the ascension of Jesus took him upwards. Scripture says the heavens are actually all around us. It's just a different realm. So it makes sense that Mark means that Jesus was given in this moment the blessing of seeing the heavenly reality all around him. Imagine that. He's come down. He's been waiting patiently all his life for this moment. And the Father allows the realm between the heavens and the earth to open up. We don't know if everyone saw it, but we know that Jesus saw it. And he would have seen the hosts of heaven. He would have had a moment of clarification of his identity like he hadn't seen for a long time. And there was this sense that, no, you are who you know you are. And in the midst of this gloriously strengthening moment, his his call is launched. Firstly, the Spirit comes upon him. Then the Father makes the announcement. This is my Son, whom I love. Let's see if we can fix this up. Sorry about that. This is my son whom I love. Might be a bit loud. We'll get there. This is my son. Perfect. 
This is my son whom I love, and I reckon he is pretty good. That's what God says in the new revised Hornsby translation. God says, in essence, I love you, I'm proud of you, you are mine. There is a reason why our first core value is known and loved, isn't there? When we are known and loved, we have a foundation to live out of. And when we are known and loved by the God who created the universe, that changes everything. And I find it fascinating that Jesus was no different. In this moment of beginning, he needed to know that he was known by the Father and he needed to know that he was loved by the Father. If Jesus needed that, what do you reckon? We need that. Knowing who we are and whose we are is the bedrock of living out God's call on our lives. Jesus is obviously being reminded that he is the Son of God. What is curious about this event is that while Jesus has a heavenly identity, a Son of the living God, the Son of God, he is actually in his baptism beginning his identification this way with sinful humanity. So in the same moment that he is being reminded, I belong to the heavenly realm, I belong to the Father, I am God, I'm the Son of God, as John 1 tells us, he's both. This is the beginning of the divine exchange. He is identifying with sinful humanity. Jesus gets what I deserve, and I get what he deserves, is the gospel. He doesn't need or deserve to obey John's call to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus has never sinned. Why would Jesus get baptized? Firstly, he is identifying with the people of Israel who went through a baptism as they walked through the Red Sea out of Egypt and then significantly, as we'll see in a moment, went into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is the perfection of everything Israel were meant to be and do for God. Jesus is identifying with faithless Israel, even as faithful Israel. And he is beginning to live out what Paul later refers to in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you getting the importance of this? This is a little bunch of verses, but it's the beginning of his ministry and his identification with being the Son of God this way to heaven and also his identification as being the Saviour of the world, a human being who would die on a cross for the rest of the world. How is he going to accomplish this, this enormous task? The same way that every woman or man of God achieves God's call on their lives through the anointing and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always powerfully present when God is doing a new thing, 
So you need him if you're stepping out into a new thing. Amen? What was the Holy Spirit doing when the waters were looking pretty chaotic in Genesis? He's hovering around ready to do the creative work that the Father might summon him to do. What's the Holy Spirit doing when the church is birthed at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit is there empowering and anointing. Amazing beginnings. Jesus is baptized to identify with Israel and with sinful humanity. He is acknowledged publicly from an open heaven that he is the much-loved Son of God and he is anointed like the kings of old with the Spirit of God. At once, verse 12, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. It's the language of Mark at once. Gets his identity right, gets anointed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And who sent him to the wilderness? The Spirit. He is identifying with the people of Israel who went by God's leading into the wilderness after going through the Red Sea. Mark doesn't tell us how Satan tempted Jesus. If you think about the other Gospels, we get far more information from them. But we know from those Gospels that the essence of Satan's attack was for Jesus to cut the corner, to avoid the cross-shaped journey, to avoid the cross, to avoid pain at all costs, Satan basically says, your God, pull out the God card and cut the corner. Do some magic. Make a miracle happen so you don't have to suffer. But we know that Jesus obeyed the word of God, unlike the first Adam, first man Adam and the first woman Eve. Mark says, Jesus was attacked with temptation by Satan and he was also threatened by the wild animals also. What does he mean by that? I think he's saying, you know, as we step out and we identify as by faith the children of God and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we will come up against the attacks of the evil one because it's a spiritual world we are in, but we will also be confronted by physical pushback like wild animals, maybe some of the people you've encountered in your life you can relate to as the wild animals. And if that's you and you know what that's really like, it's actually not funny. May you know today that the same God who protected Jesus is your God by faith. There's a wilderness to walk through. When we understand who we are, and how we are going to fulfill God's calling on our lives, which is through the Spirit and by the grace of God. So let me ask you this morning a question you've been asked before. Who are you? What is the foundational identity in this Polaroid snapshot of your life this morning? What identity are you living out of? What is driving the big decisions of your life how are you going to accomplish what you have been called to do with your life? Or like probably many of us here today, you think, called to do? What? I'm surviving. I don't feel particularly called to anything. I'm a nobody. 
I want to encourage you in Jesus' name, there are no nobodies in the kingdom. Because God knows your name. Amen? If he knows your name, you're a somebody. <clears throat> and he has something for you to do, good works prepared in advance, to bring glory to Jesus. Mark 1, 9 to 13. Tells us we need to know that we know we are a child of God and we need to know that we have the empowering of the Spirit to live as a child. Maybe you don't know that this morning. Let me tell you how you become a child of the living God. John chapter 1, 11 to 13 tells us, He, that's Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. To all, to all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, God has given the right to become children of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, how do you become a child of God? If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We can become a child of God through faith in Jesus. The Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is an eternal life available to those who would come under God's grace through Jesus, confessing our sins and confessing that he is Lord and we will be saved. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us how it all happened. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's that identification. He was righteous, yet he came and was clothed in our sin to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus died for our sin. Jesus died for your sin and for mine. Sin must be punished. And Jesus took that punishment, Scripture tells us. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you need to make that confession today? Well, you'll know in your heart if you're not a child of God. We need to be children of God. And Scripture says, once we have believed, Romans 8, 16 tells us, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. God walked on the earth in the form of Jesus, and before he began his ministry, he needed this, to know that he was a child of God. He was the Son of God, and he needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. You cannot live the life that God wants you to live without those two things. You need to be a child of God. Scripture says we're just not all children of God because we're alive. We have to come under His grace, believe in His name, confess He is Lord, and then Scripture says you will be saved, you will be a child of God, the Spirit will testify with your spirit that you are a child of God. And that's the identity we live out of. So if, if you've been coming to church for a while and you go to bed at night and you don't know you're a child of God, I want to ask you to ask God to cause His Spirit to testify that in your heart 
And if not, maybe jump on your knees and say, Lord, did I not get saved? <laughs> Lord, here I am. <clears throat> Please forgive me. I believe Jesus died and rose again. Come and have your way in my life. I need to know that I'm a child of the living God. So what's next if you have put your trust in the blood of Christ and his resurrection from the dead and you believe you've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? There's been a divine exchange. The old stony heart has been taken away and we've been given a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel promised, and the Spirit's been put inside of us and it's caused us to walk according to his statutes. What is next? What is next in the amazing beginnings of new seasons? As a church, I think it's pretty cool what's next for us, the next season. New ministry centre and new possibilities, fresh buoyancy and expectation amongst our people. What about you? What is next for you in the Lord? Isn't it great to know that God knows all the stories? All the stories, all the thinking that's going on. He's across it. He knows about the new job, the new season, the the post-job life in retirement. He knows all about it. He knows about just finishing study, the new beginnings. He knows about just starting up study. He knows about post-relationship. Oh, he knows that you're starting up that relationship and you're looking for a new church. Lots of new relationships. New accommodation, new life without someone that you love. A new season of grief. A new season of joy. Know who you are and whose you are and how you're going to live this call by faith You're a child of the living God and you're empowered by the Spirit. And I want to say to you, if you're not baptised as a believer by immersion, you should be. That's very bossy, wasn't it? Why would I say that? Why would I be so cheeky when everyone knows that being friendly and nice is the most honoured thing you can be in the 21st century? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why you should be baptised as a believer by immersion. Because in Matthew 28, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands it. The last thing he says before he goes back up into heaven, ascends to heaven, is he says this, Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, and baptise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, make disciples. He doesn't say, grab your kids and baptize them. I'm not trying to be sort of cheeky to other denominations. I'm just, feel the weight of the scripture. Feel it. Go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you say, I don't want to have that happen to me, you're saying that to Jesus, not to someone in the church. We're just called to do it. We're called to baptize believers. What about Jesus? Did he set an example? Of course, we know in Matthew 3 verse 15, Jesus says to John, let it be so now, I know you don't want to baptize me, but let it be so now, it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I'm identifying with sinful humanity. Jesus commands it, he sets an example. The early church 
practiced it. Take out a Bible, start reading Acts with a pen and paper, and you write down how many times people are baptized by immersion upon faith, declaring faith in Christ. Philip in Acts 8, Paul in Acts 9, Lydia in Acts 16, the list goes on and on and on. It is a declaration of union with Christ. Check out Romans chapter 6, 3 to 4. The New Testament baptism is a mime of the gospel. You might wonder what these barn doors are there. They open up and there's a baptistry behind it. But with water restrictions, we might need more than one person. (laughs) There's a baptism happening December 8. So we need to be good stewards of water and have more than one person getting baptised. But it's just in there. And basically, it's a mime of the gospel. Remember Marcel Marceau with the white gloves? A mime of the gospel. How would you stand up here and give a mime of the gospel? Can't say any words. Well, God's best bet of doing a mime of the gospel was saying, baptise people. Put them under the water and let them come up. And what that's communicating, in no words, just an amazing symbolic action is, I have died with Christ, and because he rose again from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil, I too, in him, clothed in his righteousness, I am going to rise from the dead and live forever, wrapped up in the righteousness of Jesus. Hallelujah. That's what Romans 6, 3 to 4 says. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, burial. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It is a declaration of union with Christ. It's an act of revolution. It's a symbol of new life, a revolutionary act. It's saying, I have started a new beginning. I'm on a new journey following my Lord, and there's no turning back. It's a sign of cleansing, Acts 22, verse 16. Now, what are you waiting for, Paul says? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Wash your sins away. We know that sins are washed away by faith in the blood of Christ alone, not through baptism, but baptism is a symbol of what has already happened by faith. It's a confession of faith. Romans 10, 9, I've quoted a few times today. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. People will share, Lord willing, Rachel on the December 8th will share a testimony and give glory to Jesus as the Lord of her life, as a saviour of her life. Jesus commands it. Jesus did it. The early church did it. It's a declaration of union with Christ. It's an act of revolution. It's a sign of cleansing. It's a confession of faith and it's a rite of initiation. In baptism, all are equal and you've got to tip your hat to God for coming up with it. Because it doesn't matter what era of history you live in, people love wearing fancy clothes. It delineates between classes and the way they do their hair and wear makeup and all this. What happens to all those class-defining distinctions when you come up, everyone looks like a drowned rat, don't they? As my parents would say. Everyone, the makeup's running, the hairdo is done, and God's saying, that's the way I like it. Because I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble 
First Corinthians 12 says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. We're in it together. It really is a rite of initiation that we are baptized following faith. A mime of the gospel saying, this is what's happened in my heart. So new beginnings, baptism, marked a new beginning for Jesus. It was a time when his identity and purpose was reaffirmed and reinforced who he was and how he was going to live out his calling. Child of God, born of the Spirit. Is that, is that your life? I'm a child of God and I've been born of the Spirit and I'm going to live forever. So I want to do my best to live for Jesus. Or are you stuck? Does God have something next for you? It takes courage to step into the next thing, doesn't it? And as I look around, what that list I said before, I mean, it's real. <laughs> I wasn't making it up. <laughs> I was just thinking about people I know. It's life. We're all coming into these new steps and new seasons of taking on what God has for us. I wondered whether we could have um, an old-fashioned altar call because it creates a moment in time where we can say, you know what, I'm going to step into obedience and often you have an altar call that comes down the front, but our altar call, if you'd like to take the opportunity, is I hope you enjoy seeing the cross there. We had to um, get the cross out from the garage, and uh, we're always hoping to have it. We'll get another bigger cross made because it's such an amazing symbol. But I've found in my life that not because there's a power and a magic in that cross, but to kneel before an empty cross is something powerful. And to do it while the people of God are singing around you can be really special. So is there something that you need to respond to God for today? Maybe it's to give your life to Him, make that first confession. I was pushing a lot about baptism just a minute ago. I, I was challenged to be baptised when I was 17 years old and the pastor said, the time has come to declare your faith publicly, be baptised. And, uh, and there was an altar call. And before I knew it, I was walking down the front. And I was standing at the front. And there was a date being arranged for me to be baptised. When's the last time you responded to an altar call? We don't have them very often. We have to stand up. I mean, a lot of us think, oh, that's just for a brand new Christian in the 1959 Billy Graham crusade. At the Randwick Raceway or something. But there can be a power in, in just confessing to God publicly before your brothers and sisters, I need you, Lord. I know this myself. In my first year of theological college at Morling College, we would um, have chapel services. They still do it, I think. Every Tuesday, there'd be a chapel service, and it was like a church service. About 170 people from memory would be there. And um, we all were walking in, and, and I was walking along. It was the end of my first year at college, and, and I remember feeling like, I know it's subjective, but I felt like the Lord said to me, there's going to be an altar call today and you're going to go forward for prayer. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Or maybe I 
making that up. And I thought, maybe if it is God, that's highly unlikely, Lord, so I could probably just roll with that and say yes, because I've never seen an altar call at chapel. Why would they have altar calls at chapel? They're all Christians. They're uh, nearly professionals. They're paid to be Christian. You have to be very holy to be that. So these people, I think there's, there's not going to be an altar call here. So Lord, no worries. If that's you, I will sign up now and say, yes, I will. So Ross Clifford, before he was principal, he's preaching away. is a great message. Of course, all, all I'm thinking about is when the altar call is coming. And it comes to the end, no altar call. I thought, oh, isn't it good? It's very hard to hear from the Lord. It's always very subjective. He's about to hop down. And he... He says, I'd like to invite Rose Weir up. She's going to lead you in a time of response. <laughs> so Rose Weir, who is, um, was a pastor up at Carrion and a student, she hops up and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, okay, well, Lord, thanks. This is an affirmation time. Because she's going to get up and say, if you are already a, a legend in the Lord and you just want to top up, just a top up, come on out. No, it was exactly what I expected. She basically said something like, if you've never really committed yourself to the Lord, if you've been scampering around like a little coward for years, and I'm like, Lord, really? It wasn't quite that, but it felt like that. It was like, if you need to commit, come on out, we're going to pray for you. And I was the first one out. I don't say that as a proud thing, but I thought... This time, Lord, there is no question. You did say you wanted me to come. And, you know, I can't remember what happened in that moment, but it's like, it's like eating a great meal. You don't rem remember every meal, but in the moment, it's something special. So our band's going to come out, and uh, we're going to sing a song, Come to the Altar. So, guys, if you'd like to come out. And I just want to pray and uh, encourage you in that prayer to respond how you feel you need to. And we're going to have some of our prayer team over there. And you, if you wanted to just go out there and say, I want to be baptised, uh, we'll take your name and we'll talk to you about when that could happen. Maybe you'd like to give your life to the Lord. Or maybe it's just you'd like to go over there and kneel and say, I'm cool. I don't need any prayer. I just want to be here while my brothers and sisters sing over me. There's a little space over there in front of the cross. If you'd like prayer, you can head over there. Let's pray. Would you like to stand? Lord Jesus, we give you all the glory uh, because of your awesome humility in identifying with us, being baptised for repentance when you had nothing to repent of, but you identified with us. And you didn't stop. You went all the way to the cross and you died for our sin. And Lord, we want to confess today, many of us lose sight of this and start living our own life and running our own race and thinking that what's next is about how well we can design it. But Lord God, I pray that you could prompt those of us who need to respond and receive a touch from your spirit that's fresh anointing for a new season would you do something that only you can do now in this moment as your people worship Lord God you're the God of new beginnings 
for those who need a blessing. I pray that you might prompt them to receive it. Lord, as a church, we want to be a church that sees the power of the Spirit of God unleashed. We want to see people come to know Jesus. We want to see, as we've prayed for years, many, many more baptized, declaring Jesus is Lord. We want to see family lines until you return changed. Kids and grandkids becoming Christians, filled with your Spirit, given the gifts of the Spirit to go out and do the works of Jesus, the works of the gospel. We want to be a church that's part of the kingdom advancing. And it's all for your glory, Lord Jesus.